Open is supported by Renaissance Bank. The support of partners like Renaissance Bank allows us to bring you high-quality journalism. When a Tupelo police detective named Barta Geary arrived at the Ochi household on the morning of August 27, 1992, the first thing he noticed was a significant amount of blood. 13-year-old Lee Ochi had just been reported missing, and Aguirre was among the first on the scene. I'm Emma Kent, and this is Open, the case of Lee Ochi, a podcast from the Northeast Mississippi Daily Journal, exploring what we know and what we still don't about the disappearance of Lee Ochi 25 years ago. On this episode, we'll explore the first hours after Lee was reported missing and the initial search to find her. Almost immediately, that search faced a powerful obstacle. The center of what was once Hurricane Andrew was passing through North Mississippi, and Aguirre said the heavy rainfall made it more difficult than usual to search for Lee. It was raining, and the wind was high, and it was blowing. I do remember that we had some bloodhounds that we brought out to the scene to see whether or not the bloodhounds were able to to do any tracking. Uh, We spent a lot of time uh, searching a ditch that adjoined that property, as well as a, um, a field that had a lot of trees and brush and everything in it. But we scoured the, this field just south of, of their residence that was across that ditch and with these dogs and hoping that these dogs would, would be able to pick up on, mm-hmm. on something. But, um, you know, the, the dog handler at that time said, you know, this rain is... Um, is really hampering the efforts because of the high winds and and the rains and everything. He said, uh, we're just not picking up anything. The dogs aren't reacting to anything. Either she didn't come this way or, you know, this weather's really played um, a large role in the fact that the dogs haven't been able to pick up anything. After searching Lee's house that day, police focused their efforts in and around her neighborhood. Detectives on the case were joined by about a dozen patrolmen and searched a ditch in about 80 acres of vacant land adjacent to Lee's house. Parts of the land were overgrown with thick weeds and thorn bushes, so officers had to use horses to search those areas. After several hours spent searching the vacant land, police spoke to Lee's neighbors and searched her family's cars using a bloodhound. They then searched the neighborhood again. They also searched a 10-foot-wide ditch that ran east to west next to Lee's house. Their searches produced no leads. When they first arrived on the scene, Aguirre and other investigators had trouble figuring out exactly what had happened inside the house. There was some indication that she, Lee, had sustained some type of injury. You couldn't tell how bad the injury was. You couldn't tell where the injury was. But because it looked like the, the blood had dripped down onto her nightgown, so you would think, well, the injury had to be above the neck, possibly. When you looked at where the blood stains or the blood was on the door facing, it was kind of high up on the, on the door jamb. So it, it could have been either shoulder or head or face area, if she had hit her head against that uh, door facing that caused that transfer of blood onto that door facing. 
Aguirre said investigators at the scene collected blood and evidence, and they drew diagrams of the house's layout. Then um, the mother, Vicki, she started pointing out several things that uh, she had noticed that was missing. Because recently, Lee had had just had a birthday, and she said, oh, she's um, she got a, a, some new bra and panties, and, you know, that kind of stuff is missing, and... There's um, an old uh, sleeping bag or something that's missing, and, you know, she was uh, giving us descriptions of, of different things that uh, she felt like Lee could possibly be wearing, you know, mm-hmm. if, if we located her. Police didn't find any signs of forced entry at the house, and Vicki said she locked all the doors when she left that day. So Aguirre and others decided Lee probably opened the door for someone. Aguirre said it was also apparent to him that someone had tried to clean up blood in the bathroom. There appeared to be a very light pink haze on that countertop. Like if if there was blood there, somebody took a wet rag and tried to clean it up and it dried, you know, with that very faint pink uh, haze on it, you know. And um, we even um, took a swatch of that that area and um, tried to determine whether or not that, you know, there was actually somebody trying to clean up or or hide. Former Daily Journal reporter Rick Hammond was one of the first people on the scene the day Lee disappeared. Rick covered the Lee Ochi case meticulously. I haven't been a reporter for 24 years now, um, but it is still the story that I covered that I get asked about to this day. I, every few years, I will get a phone call from someone um, wanting to talk about the case. Rick was at his house just a few minutes from Lee's when he heard the call come in over the police scanner that morning. I hopped in the car and headed straight over there um, and, and frankly beat a lot of the officers there. So there was already, I think, at least one patrol car on the scene got to the house and heard pretty quickly from one of the officers on the scene that a 13-year-old child had been reported missing, uh, that there was blood in multiple places in the house, um, including on a door frame. Um, The garage door was opened, and uh, the mother had come home, and the doors were unlocked to the house, and the garage door was wide open. Um, So at that point, nobody really knows exactly what's happening, but none of that sounds good. There was blood and hair on a doorway. Um, They found blood in the house, um, pretty significant amounts in the carpet. They also found uh, a blood-stained nightgown that she had been wearing, Um, and they determined that a few things were missing from the house. Um, Her eyeglasses were missing and a pair of shoes um, that she had just gotten for her birthday. She had turned 13 like the week before this. Um, and also some underwear that were or undergarments that were new that she had also received from her birthday so for her birthday. So that was all missing from the house. Rick said the city of Tupelo was on edge after word got around about Lee's disappearance. And it was uh, pretty alarming to the city um, because all anybody really knew was on a normal weekday morning in a rainstorm, um, a mother reported that. She came home after calling her house and her daughter not answering the phone and 
found doors open and unlocked and blood in the house and her daughter wasn't there. So um, naturally, people were very alarmed in the city. In the days following Lee's disappearance, police continued to search for her throughout the Tupelo area. I dug out archives of the Daily Journal from August and September of 1992 to read Rick's articles about the searches and other developments from the early days of the case. He told me he wrote something about the Ochi case nearly every day for a month, and he wasn't kidding. On Friday, August 28th, police used a helicopter to search for Lee. On Saturday, they searched again, both in the air and on foot, looking in surrounding dumps. They also used a Newfoundland, a Canadian dog, able to detect the scent of dead bodies buried or submerged below water. The first few days, it was very um, frenzied in terms of trying to figure out whether or not she might be alive somewhere and injured or kidnapped. Um, So there was a lot of really frantic activity the first few days in looking for places that she might have been either hidden or injured and, you know, fell or lost or something like that. Police had a hard time determining whether or not Lee had been taken on foot or in a vehicle, and whether or not she could still be alive, considering the amount of blood found at the scene. The amount of blood that we saw on, on the scene didn't look like a whole lot, but we don't know what took place, mm-hmm. whether or not, you know, there was uh, a, a towel or, or something else that was able to to wrap her up in or wrap that wound up in to, uh, to cause less bleeding on, on the surface of mm-hmm. the carpet and, and the door facings. There's too many variables, you know, to, to say for certain that, hey, there's, there's not enough there to cause death or there, you know, or anything like that. You just don't know. On August 31st, rumors swirled that Lee's body was in a barn on some property owned by a local doctor. A search proved those rumors to be untrue, and it was back to the drawing board for investigators. About a week after Lee disappeared, a headline in the September 4th issue of the Daily Journal read, Ochi Case at Standstill. Meanwhile, Lee's family posted a $1,000 reward for information about her location. According to Rick's articles, the Tupelo Police Department formed a task force for the Ochi case, and after a week of searching, investigators took a step back to re-examine the facts. Naturally, the first thing they do is try to figure out if there's anything suspicious about the family members or close friends and um, sort of clear relatives first before you start looking at the possibility that some complete stranger showed up at a house and took a child. The mother that day had, I forget where she worked, but she worked maybe 10 or 15 minutes away from the house. And um, the way the whole event unfolded that morning was that she had gotten up that morning and um, had had breakfast with Lee and then had gone to work. Um, But it was stormy that day. And um, she had indicated that Lee always got nervous during rainstorms and wasn't, wasn't comfortable during rainstorms. And so she, what she told the police was she got to the office and worked for a bit and called Lee to check on her, uh, maybe half an hour later, and Lee didn't answer the phone. And so she, there were a couple different versions of events. One was that she then called her mother. Um, another version said, was that she didn't call her mother till after she got home and uh, then called her mother 
um, to say that she couldn't find her daughter. Um, but after she called the house and didn't get an answer, she went home. She said that when she got home, the garage door was open, like the automatic garage door opener, and that the light was still on, which would have indicated that it had just been opened in the last five minutes. And that she went in the house, and um, there was blood everywhere, blood in different places, and um, that the doors were unlocked, and that she looked all through the house, couldn't find her, went outside, checked the shed, couldn't find her, checked the pool, and then called 911. I think the police did spend a good bit of time initially just parsing through that timeline and whether or not that made sense. The case quickly became the subject of a lot of rumors and gossip in the Tupelo community. At one point, then-Tupelo Police Chief Billy White even put a gag order on the case, forbidding investigators from talking about it outside of work. People wanted to know what happened to Lee, and they wanted to be reassured that it wouldn't happen to their children, too. Tupelo is still, I think, it's been a few years since I was there, but I think still would be considered, you know, more of a safe, small town by current standards, and it certainly was back then. Um, uh, you know, frankly, you could have felt safe leaving your doors unlocked probably in that part of town. Um, and so this was really alarming. Um, and people um, wanted to know what had happened. Um, I think people wanted some sort of reassurance that this wasn't just, you know, a stranger showed up at a house and abducted a girl. And nobody really knew because uh, basically what I laid out is about all they knew. And uh, all kinds of rumors started circulating. So there was um, a lot of apprehension. Um, People locking up the house and, you know, keeping their kids indoors because nobody really knew if this was a stranger abduction um, or was it connected in some way to Lee. They lived in you know, in in what was considered uh, a nice neighborhood in West Tupelo at that point. I talked to a number of the neighbors um, who lived on the street because she lived on a Mm -hmm. cul-de-sac. I remember one of the neighbors I spoke to told me that she had actually come over the night before. Um, I think she had been out somewhere and maybe at an event with other kids or something and had gotten home and her mother wasn't home yet. And so she went over to the neighbor's house to to hang out until her mother got home. Um, but seemed perfectly normal to the neighbor, very, you know, friendly, normal teenager. Um, nothing bothering her the night before. That neighbor is Ellen Freelow, who still lives in Tupelo. I tracked her down on Facebook and we set up a phone interview. Yeah, it has. I'm sorry. I had to reschedule the other day. Oh, that's okay. Ellen and her husband, David, lived in the cul-de-sac at the end of Honey Locust Drive, and she said Lee was always stopping by their house to chat or play with their dog. I asked Ellen what she remembered about the night before Lee went missing. I remember the last time I spoke to her, she came over that evening. It was School was about to start, and she was telling us a little bit about starting back to school. But the next Saturday, she wanted to come over. She said, I think I'll, I want to come over, and I want to give your dog a bath. Can I do that? And I think she might have wanted $5 for it or something like that. And <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, you can come back and, and give him a bath. And 
that that'll be fine. And, you know, it's just, you know, kind of, it was just another conversation. Ellen said she wasn't home at the time Lee was reported missing, and she didn't notice anything unusual in the neighborhood that morning as she left for work. And then I just remember um, the next day going to work as usual, but then we heard that she was missing and then coming home, and it was just crazy with, uh, you know, law enforcement on the street and, and reporters and detectives. If it, something happened, it, you know, in the house, uh, it, it must have happened right after we went to work or, or was happening about that time. Of course, you know, when you're trying to get to work, you, you're not paying a whole lot of attention to much of anything else. And mm-hmm. I don't remember anything been going on that morning. Um, it, I just remember hearing about it later that she was missing. Did the, um, you know, later on when, when the police were kind of around and looking at the house and talking to people, did they talk to you? Did you talk to police? Were they interviewing neighbors? What was that like? Uh, yeah, it, it was weird because you could tell just by the questioning and just the conversations in the neighborhood that that there may have been something suspicious going on with her disappearance. Not really knowing uh, or having any experience with anything suspicious going on down there before, it, it was kind of weird. It's like, gosh, what what was happening in that house? And I remember just going to bed that night, leaving the window blinds open so we could see if we, if she came, I guess if she walked back down the street, we might see it. I don't know. It was crazy. We just, we just were looking for her. By the time Lee's father, Donald Ochi, arrived in Tupelo almost two weeks after Lee disappeared, community interest in the case was continuing to grow. Donald was in the military and stationed in Virginia at the time. After being granted leave, he traveled to Tupelo to help search for Lee. He stayed in Tupelo for about a month, and with the help of volunteers, searched a large portion of Lee County. We searched all around Tupelo, and there's some swampy area, uh, God, what's it called? It's down south of the town, I think. Tom, was it the Tom, Tom Bigby waterway? That's probably part of it. I, I don't remember exactly. Christ, it's been 25 years. Donald also turned to several psychics for help. What made you? What made you want to do that? And and what? Um, you ever had a kid missing? No. Well, there you go. That's why. So you just wanted? You were just looking, you know, to do anything that might help. If they just said go talk to a tree, I would have done that. One of those psychics was self-proclaimed psychic detective Dorothy Allison. Dorothy died in 1999, and she was credited with helping solve at least a dozen murders and helping find at least 50 missing children during her career. She worked with police departments and detectives voluntarily. She even worked on the John Bonet Ramsey case, which remains unsolved. She told me a little information. She told the cops a lot of information. She wouldn't tell me what she told them. So she gave me some thoughts. And there was another one whose name is Jeanette Matasha. Her name is now Jeanette Lucas. Her dad is very, very well known in the psychic community, and she is too. She went down there with me uh, after after we vanished. And then there was a Japanese psychic who was part of a Japanese TV show that went to Tupelo from uh, Japan. I don't remember his name. 
Donald said the psychics mostly just told him general things like she's near a body of water, which he didn't find very helpful. At times, he said he felt like he and his search parties were doing more than police to try to find Lee. Did the police help you with those searches? No. No, that was just like you and citizens and sort of citizen searches? Yes. They would tell us to look at a spot. And then you guys would, the police would tell you? Yeah. Well, we had a call about something over here or over there. Well, if you had a call, why didn't you go look? I'm not an investigator. There are some things that were done early on in the investigation that Donald and others have questioned over the years, but Aguirre maintains that the police department did the best that they could. There's some things you may ask Tupelo Police Department, why did it take 10 days or two weeks for the uh, state crime lab to show up? Why was she not, why was the crime scene not sealed? Mm-hmm. They left her, her mother stay in the house. The crime scene was never sealed. So in those 14 days, you could do an awful lot to clean up a crime scene. Aguirre denies there were any issues with the crime scene. When I got there, everything was still pretty much secured and, uh, you know, waiting for my arrival. Except then the only ones inside that crime scene area was uh, Vicki, the, the mother, and the grandparents, and then the, the other detectives that were involved. So there wasn't a whole lot of people inside that crime scene except for, you know, those few people. And we kept uh, the grandparents and Vicky, you know, in that kitchen area, just off to the side where, where the, the blood evidence was and, and the bedroom and, and the bathroom area. So all that, that area was still kept pretty secure. Despite the tragedy of Lee's disappearance, Donald said he still has a soft spot in his heart for the city of Tupelo. He told me stories describing the community as kind and thoughtful, and he said some members of Lee's church even took up collections of money to help him pay for his hotel room. About a month after he left Tupelo, Donald said this in an article in the Daily Journal. The people of Tupelo have demonstrated to me what it truly means to care for another human being. On the way out to our daily searches, the employees and strangers would often approach us and say, God bless you, or your little girl has been in our prayers. Such a small kindness means so much now that I think back on it. Thank you, Tupelo. I'll never forget what you've done for me. In our next episode, you'll hear more about Lee through the words of those who knew her. This episode of Open, The Case of Leochi, was produced by Chris Kiefer with music by J.B. Clark. You can subscribe to Open on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit djournal.com slash openpodcasts to stream episodes and access additional content. That's where you'll find an interactive timeline that walks you through the events of the case. Connect with us on Twitter at open underscore podcast or find us on Facebook. You can also contact us via email with tips, information, or just your thoughts about the show at openpodcast at journalinc.com. That's journalinc.com. Special thanks to Renaissance Bank for their support of this podcast.